You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John chapter 4, our focus today will be on verses 43 through 54. We'll be reading verses 39 through 54. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, And asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Have mercy on us, not only for our little faith, but for our perverse faith. Forgive us when we welcome you in a way that does not honor you. When we seek you in a way that's not really seeking you.
have mercy on us and gently lead us towards a more pure and righteous faith as you do this Father. And also, Father, we would cry out for our children who are spiritually dead and plead that you would grant life. Bless now the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. The Gospel of John is divided into two parts. Part 1, running from chapters 1 through 12, is known by scholars frequently as the book of signs. Part 2, chapter 13 onwards, the book of glory or the book of passion. The first part of this book, the book of signs, there are seven signs that John focuses on. And in the second part, there's not a one mentioned. So, central to the plot line, the first 12 chapters, the book of signs, these seven signs, and then you come to the book of glory, focusing on the last week of Jesus' life, and there's not one sign except the sign of signs, which is central to everything Jesus speaks of. That sign that He introduced in chapter 2, the sign of his death and resurrection, or as he spoke of it there, the destruction of the temple and its being raised again in three days. Chapter 2, 18 through 22, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? After he's cleansed the temple, what sign? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What John's aim is in recording, transmitting these select signs, these specific signs, he does not leave you to infer or deduce or guess. He explicitly tells you in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. These signs are written for that express purpose. So that unbelievers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have eternal life. And I believe it's clear This is written for believers so that their faith might be strengthened and that they might testify knowing what this gospel word in particular is divinely authorized to accomplish, should give you confidence, should strengthen your faith that this is the means to causing faith. But paradoxically, in our text, 
And in other places, Jesus gives warnings about signs. Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The most stern warning, the most illuminating of such instances has to be Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They're demanding signs, and he says they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Keep that in mind. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So these signs are written so that we might believe, and yet a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So does this gospel gnaw off its own legs? Does it have anything to stand on? There is a way of seeing signs that is for faith. And there is a way of seeking signs that is contrary, opposite to faith. That is an expression of unbelief. John records these signs so that you might believe. And he's also telling you there's a way of seeking signs that is unbelief. John records this instance in particular to highlight the nature of True faith to signs. You want to handle these signs well. Eternal life and sanctification are on the line in how you think and come to the question of signs and faith. Come at them one way. And it's an expression of arrogant unbelief that will receive a sharp rebuke from our Lord. Come at this another way, and there is humble faith that will receive grace from the Redeemer. The setting for this incident is the land of Galilee. But the harvest smells of Samaria still linger in the air. After the two days he departed for Galilee. After the two days. Not simply after after two days. No, after the two days. Those two days 
that he stayed because of the request of the believing Samaritans. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the Samaritans believe, not because of what they saw, but because of what they heard. And we arrive at this destination now, we're in Galilee, because Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptized and making more disciples than John. And so, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he purposes to go to Galilee, but he had, verses 3 and 4, to go through Samaria. And the had to go through Samaria, him having to do that, is more than geographic necessity. It is because there is a work that the Father has lined out before him. And that work is the gathering of the harvest. And so now, as we are treading this soil to and in Galilee, we are doing so with the harvest smells of Samaria still lingering in our nostrils. And as Jesus departs, we receive this explanation. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Is that puzzling? He departs for Galilee because he said a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I think this is telling us why Jesus departed and telling us how He departed. And how He departed was with this knowledge. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. He knows that. In order to understand everything Jesus does here, you need to understand that for. That explanation that's given right there. And to understand that explanation, you need to understand what He means by hometown. And D.A. Carson has said that no less than ten different answers have been proposed for what is meant by hometown right there. The most prominent, the most sensible to come at it initially, is to look at how that same phrase is used in all the synoptic gospels. Jesus says this, he speaks of this in every one of them, and in every instance that he does, it refers to Nazareth in particular. So Matthew 13, 53 through 57, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, coming to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? You see, this is his hometown. They know him. 
Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So, they propose here, this has reference to Nazareth. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, Nazareth is in Galilee. Jesus departs for Galilee, but he departs for Galilee, not going to Nazareth, his hometown, because he's shown no honor there. That's an explanation that's given, and that sounds pretty good. My problem with it is Nazareth is nowhere in view in our text. Not referenced at all. The last you heard from it was whenever Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's nowhere in view here. Other interpretations are more fanciful, suggesting that Judea or Jerusalem is the hometown. So he departs there to where Samaria he's believed on and Galilee where he's welcomed. I find that a big stretch. And the other major explanation, more prominent of, of the three, other than the one I'm about to argue for, is that hometown refers to heaven, which I just find really bizarre and makes this way more of a puzzle than it already is. I believe John is expanding his statement that he's, Jesus has made concerning Nazareth in particular to concern the region of Galilee altogether. Hometown can be rendered homeland, as it somewhat is in the Christian standard, New American standard, basically the same sense. They have country. A prophet is not without honor except in his country. John is bringing us back to the theme he's introduced that we've seen several times, but it was introduced in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And now it's not simply his own, but his own, his own particular people, his own region, the, his own county. He came back to his own county, to those who knew him best, and they did not receive him. This is heightened, the nature of this, as Jesus is leaving Judea. He's traveled through Samaria, and he comes to Galilee, and he's not welcomed there. No honor. Jesus goes to Galilee knowing that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus is not seeking popularity. He's not trying to start a movement. Indeed, his actions consistently are to thwart such hype. But the Galileans have a very peculiar way seems of not honoring Jesus. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Jesus is still welcomed today in this way. A way that does not honor him. He's not only welcomed in this way by the world. 
you'll see all kinds of welcoming of Jesus. But not only by the world, you will find this kind of welcoming in churches, in Jesus' hometown, as it were. Jesus is welcomed by many in a way that dishonors Him. What marks such a dishonoring kind of welcome? I believe the key word is seen. They welcomed Him having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They too. This links them with those others that were at the feast. And it links their welcoming with their believing. There are all kinds of links in this passage with chapter 2. Especially chapter 2 in the cleansing of the temple and the aftermath that followed. When, where we read... Now, when he was in Jerusalem, this is after he's cleansed the temple, they ask for a sign, and he says, no sign will be given except that sign given to Jonah. It's the same thing he's speaking of whenever he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it's after that we read, while, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So this welcoming because they had seen is the same as that believing because they had seen. Both are set in contrast with this event that happens in the middle and the Samaritans believing because they had heard. There's a kind of believing that is not believing. There's a kind of welcoming that is not welcoming. And marking that spurious faith and that false welcoming is an emphasis on sight. The eye is elevated above the ear. There's a dominance with this of excitement, of hype. There's an absence of knowledge and understanding. Marvel takes precedence over meaning. And so it is that Jesus is welcomed by many today where there's an emphasis on sight and experience, and the preaching and heralding and hearing the Word of God takes a secondary position. Seeing signs and wonders takes center stage, replaces the pulpit, the proclamation of the Word. Not only in many charismatic churches, gospel, uh, prosperity gospel preaching churches, but in many evangelical, gospel-affirming churches as well. Some do it with slaying in the Spirit, and others do it with fog and lights. And I've seen in the Reformed camp, we are not immune either. 2006, September issue of Christianity Today, carried the title... Young, restless, and reformed. 
And so I was right there, part of that movement. And I saw as that movement began to lose its luster, its hype. Many dispersed and scattered, scattered and followed false teachings, bad teachings, even heretical teachings, or just left the Reformed camp, still preaching, holding to the gospel, but part of something else that is gaining more attention, more hype. It's not the message in such an instance, it's the show that leads to a welcoming of Jesus. Such a welcome is not excited to receive the King. But the parade of gifts that follow in His train. So Jesus comes to Cana in Galilee, verse 46. Where He had made water into wine, linking this sign with the first one. And while He's at Cana... Word gets to an official who is at Capernaum, verse 46. And the word you have for official here is a specific one. This is not uh, just any official. That word in particular denotes one who serves a king. So very likely, almost no doubt, that would mean he was a servant to Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. And when the official hears that Jesus has come to Galilee, he goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to come down. He does this because the way they spoke of going up and down had regard more to elevation. Well, did, not, not direction. Capernaum is northeast of Cana, located by the Sea of Galilee. And so he's, he's heading north, but he's coming down. Come down and heal his son who's near the point of death, verse 47. While Capernaum is roughly 16 miles directly northeast, it is, one scholar has argued, because of the route that had to be taken, more of a 25-mile journey. It's a 25-mile journey with a rise in elevation of 1,300 feet. So this father... Is not only desperate, he's determined. And I think it's clear that with his actions, there is obviously a kind of belief in Jesus being demonstrated here. He believes Jesus is able to heal his son, or at least his belief has this glimmer of hope. There's some kind of belief here that it's possible Jesus can heal his son. And Jesus rebuffs his request. Jesus said to him, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, this is not unusual. Jesus often does this kind of thing when someone first approaches him in this manner. You saw it in his mother coming to him at the feast, chapter 2. There's no wine. He replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come, 2 and verse 4. But perhaps the most notable 
example of such a response is Jesus' reply to the Syrophoenician woman who begged, heal my daughter, cast this demon out of her. And Jesus answered, let the children be fed first. She's a Syrophoenician woman. She's a Gentile. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, Gentiles. And the woman pled still, saying, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus replies, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Mark seven twenty-four through 30 Such instances not only teach us concerning the persistence of prayer, and only teach us that, we see Jesus using them to expose and to test. By this rebuff, Jesus both tests and exposes, but we need to be clear as to who He tests and who He exposes. He said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you is plural in both instances. Unless you see signs, you will not believe. And he's saying this to him. By this, he is testing that man and he is exposing the Galileans. That's the kind of welcome he's getting here. They saw what he did. And now he says to them, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Testing the man, exposing them. The word wonders often accompany signs throughout the scriptures. This is the only place it's used in John. Wonders. They are spoken of as signs throughout. But this crowd seeking signs and wonders. Something to see and behold and stand in awe of. This is the same indictment that Paul brings against the Jews in 1 Corinthians 1.22. The Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs. And in contrast, he says, we preach Christ. These signs John records, including this one, are written so that you might believe, but beware seeking signs, demanding signs, so that you would believe. Question is will you humbly see? The signs that are, as they testify to Christ, or will you arrogantly demand a sign, positioning yourself as judge and putting God on trial as if He owed you something? Let me demonstrate, illustrate how foolish sign-seeking is. While Jesus hung on the cross, the Jews mocked Him, saying, Matthew 27, 40, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the the cross. It is precisely because He 
is the Son of God. That He is doing the very sign they are mocking in that moment. You said, destroy the temple and in three days they got it wrong. Destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days as if He would do it. He said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. They are doing the very sign He spoke of. Mocking it. They don't see. The very sign is right in front of them. And it's because He didn't save Himself that He can save sinners such as they. They're demanding a sign while Jesus is doing the very sign they mock. How foolishly we little creatures with our tiny little minds demand that the infinite God of all wisdom demonstrate Himself. Give us a sign. Whenever perhaps in His wisdom everything necessary is right before us. Sinner, you don't need to see a sign. You need to stop ignoring the signs that are right in front of you. You need to stop ignoring the testimony of general revelation, the testimony of creation, which says not only that there is a God, it shouts to you, look at this world. It shouts to you, His wrath is against us. Creation is screaming at you, not that you're a judge to determine whether or not God is, but that God is judge and you stand condemned before Him. What you need to do is not see a sign. You need to quit ignoring the testimony of creation. Suppressing that truth. And you need to hear the testimony of special revelation that astonishingly the God who we have all so sinned against in grace sent His Son, the Word, to become flesh to save our souls. You don't need to see, you need to hear Faith comes not by seeing. Faith is a kind of seeing. You need the seeing that is faith. And that faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And so being tested now, this official responds, Sir, come down before my child dies. His faith is tested, and I think it's crystal clear his faith is shown to be different than the Galileans. His faith, I believe we'll see, will be purified and refined still. But it is different. This is not a demanding. This is a pleading. He's not demanding a sign. He's pleading for his son. And I I really do believe, this is just my own thought, but I think it had to profoundly move our Lord to see a father 
pleading for his dying son. Jesus succinctly answers with a command and a promise. Verse 50, go, your son will live. This man wants Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. He has this command and this promise that if the command is obeyed, it will demonstrate faith in the promise. So think what kind of, think what is on the line here. If this man goes without Jesus, what if his son is not healed? About four days are going to be lost. If he goes with him, there's a greater assurance. Jesus is right here. He can deal with it. So this man has faith. And Jesus in refining that faith, you see what he directs it towards? His word. His promise. Prior, this man's faith meant leaving for Jesus. And now, this man's faith, if it is going to continue, means leaving without Jesus. Having only His word. This man believed And obeyed. He believed the word. The promise. He obeyed the command. And the obedience to the command. Demonstrated faith in the promise. He went from believing that Jesus could. To believing that Jesus would. And he makes that transition. Not having Jesus. Physically present. As he desired. But having Jesus' word. If you know who Christ is, you know that His Word is as good as His presence. The Word of the Word is as good as He Himself, because it's His Word. So this man's faith, instead of being a hope of what Jesus might do, now is a faith in what Christ has done. And this brings into great relief the kind of faith that Jesus has rebuked here. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man's faith is not the kind that demands to see signs to believe. This man's faith happens before he ever sees the sign. It's the kind that believes the word And for that reason, it sees a sign. Humility believes the word and sees. Where pride demands signs and hears a rebuke. Sinner, if you demand, I need to see glory. And then I'll believe. You will hear a rebuke. But if you hear the word with faith, you will see glory. You'll see the glory of Christ with the eyes of faith. You do not need to see so that you can believe. 
You need to believe so that you can see. You need to have the seeing that is faith. And that believing comes by hearing. The kind of seeing that you need is not physical eyes to gather empirical proof. You need the seeing of faith to see spiritual truth and illumine the darkness within. Now, as it was early afternoon when this official spoke with Jesus, he doesn't make it all the way back home. And thus it's yesterday whenever he meets his servants, his slaves. And again, think of how every step this man took is is an expression of faith. Previously, every step he took was one closer to Jesus. Now every step is further away from Jesus. This man cannot hold the hand of Jesus as he journeys. He only can hold on to the promise, the word of Christ. Saints, from here to there, this is all we have. And it's all we need. You don't need a sign. You don't need direct revelation. You don't need some spiritual gift to confirm God's Word. You have His Word. And it's all you need. We don't need signs from heaven. We can see again and again, our Lord has ever been faithful to His Word without fail. We need nothing more. And so this man is returning the next day. His servants meet him to tell him that his son's recovering. And this man is no doubt elated. This is where this man's behavior, if you just look at it a while, it's stunning. It's not, he's, he's elated, I have no doubt. But his response is, he's well and just rejoicing in that and wanting particulars about, about his son's health. No. He wants to know when. I believe what's happening here, it's clear. Is this man has gone with an obsession with his son to an obsession with the son. When? Seventh hour, it's dated from 6 a.m., the day begins, this would be 1 p.m., that's when the conversation happened, that's exactly when Jesus said, your son will live. And with that, this man's faith blooms and it propagates. Verse 53, the father knew, isn't it striking, he's been identified as the official so far, but now the father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. The implication here is just like that woman at the well, she went and testified and those who heard her testimony believed this man comes to his household and he tells of Christ and those who hear believe as he does. And it's at this point, I think, his faith truly is saving faith. At first, it seems his faith is simply one that Jesus, Jesus, it's just in Jesus' ability. He can heal him. And then it's a faith in Jesus' promise. He would heal him. 
What's his faith in now? The boy's healed. And he believes. What's he believe? He believes Jesus, period. Not what Jesus can do. Not what Jesus has promised. But he believes Jesus. And his whole household believes with this. Believed Jesus could, then he believed Jesus would, and now he believes simply Jesus is. Whoever Jesus says he is, he is. I don't think he has all the information, but he's believing what he has been given. What's been revealed so far. He believes what God has revealed, and so whenever more is revealed, he's already going to believe that because he believes Jesus. And what is it that's going to be testified of Jesus by all these signs and that, is, that are done and recorded for us in John, it's that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And whoever believes that has eternal life. What is the relation of saving faith then to signs? Faith is not a result of seeing signs as proof. Faith is the reception of the testimony of these signs that God has given. Signs signify. What do they signify? Many signs have rich nuances and depths. As we'll see with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes on to speak of himself as the bread of life and the manna from heaven. But boil them all down. And every sign has this basic purpose. To tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what every sign signifies at its most basic level. And they testify to this still. And what fallen man needs is not to see a fresh wonder as though he sat in judgment over God. What he needs to see is the significance, the meaning of the signs that have been given. He needs to hear this message, God's self-attesting word, come to him by the power of the Spirit, granting the new birth and the eyes of faith with it, to grasp hold of the truth conveyed by these signs. And the sign of signs was his death and resurrection, the destruction of the temple of his body, and it's being raised in three days. It was his dying in the stead of sinners, not saving himself, saving others, and his rising, conquering death so that he can give life to the dying. Believe In Him is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified and risen, and you will be saved. Sinner, you don't need a sign to marvel at. You need to marvel at the significance of the signs that have been given. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord over life and death, who was crucified for sinners and rose, conquering their foe, the last enemy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and He will give you eternal life. The joy of knowing Him in all of His glory and fullness. Let's pray.
Holy Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Even we who have saving faith, we know our faith is so weak and faltering. By your word, you test it and prove it and refine it still. And I pray you do so now. And I pray, Father, that by your word you have said, let there be light this morning. And it's shown so that others might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the preaching of your holy word. The gospel of Christ, which is the power of God into salvation. Grant faith, Father. And grant strengthening of faith. And assurance of what we have in Christ. And confidence to go out and testify And the joy of seeing households and neighbors and co-workers believing. In the name of Christ we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.